Good morning, everybody. It is episode six of Researching Happy. Uh, I've been up since 4am watching soccer. And for those who are interested, and I'm sure that's not many of you, Napoli are the champions of the Serie A in Italy. And that was definitely worth getting up at 4am to watch a one-all draw. But that means they're the champions, so good for them. And happy for the fans who've waited 33 years. But anyway, let's keep moving this episode is, I'm going to keep this intro short because I think, um, I mean, this episode really is going to speak for itself uh, with Associate Professor um, Mark Fabian. So Mark, um, he's just doing such good work. Um, I think that's an understatement, but he's doing such valuable work in the sense that he's pulling together these these fields that really don't communicate. So um, for those who remember the intro video to this episode, to this um, to this whole podcast, that's exactly where I wanted to go was was to try and pull together some of these disciplines of um, psychology, philosophy, public policy, economics, and Mark has written a book on exactly that topic and just, in my opinion, smashed it out of the park. Um, and not too many people are doing that, and I think not too many are doing it well. So um, this is by far the most technical conversation I think that I've had so far in the show. Um, so get prepared to probably hit the the uh, the rewind button or whatever you call it now that it's not rewinding, but I'll probably just keep calling it that. Hit the rewind button, you know, that minus 15 seconds thing, so that uh, in case you missed anything, because I think um, there's a lot of content here and the, that you won't want to miss it. So thank you to Mark for being on the show. Um, enjoy. All right. Welcome to Researching Happy. I'm really, really pleased and excited to have Dr. Mark Fabian with us today. I've got a quick bio of Mark's that I will read and Mark, you can tell me if I've got any of this wrong, but uh, hopefully not. So Dr. Mark Fabian is an assistant professor at the public health uh, of public, I've already stuffed up, of public policy <laughs> at the University of Warwick. He's also an affiliate researcher at the Bennett Institute of Public Policy at Cambridge University and an associate at the Institute of Social Change in the University of Tasmania. Mark was a Fulbright Scholar at the Brookings Institute in DC and an adjunct lecturer at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. Mark's dissertation was an interdisciplinary exploration of well-being theory and measurement uh, in a policy context, which is why I'm so pleased to be talking to Mark and that was uh, later turned into a book by the Oxford University Press as a theory of subjective well-being. So thank you, Mark. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really excited for this chat. No problem. So did I stuff any of that up just to begin? No, that was all good. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually kind of surprised to hear how much policy stuff I've done. Like, I, <laughs> I, it took me a long time to figure out what my branding was because my PhD is in economics, but I, I do very little very little publication in economics these days and i realized i had to kind of steer myself to policy but it's nice to hear that that is uh you know that comes through in my bio yeah well look it definitely sounds impressive that's for sure um <laughs> we'll see if we can undo some of that but i doubt it yeah um so you know i just just a quickly you know we've basically mm -hmm. just met um although i have read your book i didn't finish the last chapter oh, in time but uh, but I'll, we'll get there in a second but I don't know if you've ever had this experience where, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm in Adelaide uh, in Australia. I'm thinking, you know, we, we're, doing these, we're doing this work. We're looking for, like, we've come across a problem. Who's doing that work? Or if no one's doing it, we should be doing it. 
And then you find out, oh, there's a guy that's written a book on this whole thing. And wait a minute, that guy's in Australia or he's from Australia and he did his PhD here. Uh, and I've never heard of him. And, you know, the world's just too big, basically. So was really pleased to find out about the stuff that you're doing. Oh, cool. Great. Yeah, that's really nice to hear. I have had some experiences like that, um, particularly the couple of years that I was at Cambridge. It's happened a few times where I was like, oh, I really want to talk to someone about like moral error theory or something really kind of narrow. And then I'd start Googling around and, and they'd be like, you know, the best person in the world. And I was like, wow, I wonder where this person is. And I was like, oh, snap. <laughs> it's like just around the corner. <laughs> Two doors down. Um, yeah. So that was fun. Yeah. Very cool. So you're in the UK. You're from Australia. You said you were from Sydney. Or yeah, that's right. Feel- so I grew up in Sydney in Bondi um, and then I moved to Canberra to do undergrad and then a master's and then a PhD. So I was there for a very long time. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners kind of know the difference between Sydney and Canberra, but like Sydney's kind of like, I don't know, LA or something like that. And then Canberra's kind of the Midwest, um, culturally at least. I mean, the Canberra is the seat of government, but it's very different from DC. Think. I'm not going to ask you to translate what you think Australia, uh, Adelaide looks like, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave I've never been, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't Oh, haven't you? <laughs> no. All right, cool. Okay. And you made the move from Bondi. You're now in the UK, I guess, in terms of sunshine. How did that go for well-being? Bleak, mate, bleak, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I've actually always been a bit sceptical of this uh, Kahneman-focusing illusions result that people in the Midwest think they'd be happier in California because the sun's better, but they don't think about house prices. Like, I just don't <laughs> buy that. Like, because uh, I've lived in Australia where the house prices are insane, but there's also sunshine. And yeah, I uh, I, I would happily take that trade. So Yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> <that's a problem>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go, Kahneman, uh, yeah. you're wrong just won a Nobel prize. Don't worry about that. Um, all right. So I, just to kick off, like your, your, why I was so impressed by your book. Um, just even the first chapter is just like, yes, this guy is answering what I was looking for, which was the multidisciplinary, um, aspect. So you're really pulling together the sort of the, would you say maybe the three fields that are quite focused on wellbeing? So economics, philosophy, and, and psychology, and you've kind of got them to speak to each other so you know have i got that wrong firstly and secondly what what made you start that because it doesn't sound like it was a very easy process no i think you broadly got that right um i try to bring public policy in there a bit but um i didn't i don't think i did a great job really um i just kind of flagged some of the issues i think around translating psychological science into public policy Uh, I'm now doing much more work on the kind of policy front and actually a lot of the policy work that I do nowadays I think is not super compatible with kind of what I said in the book Um, and uh, I think there's probably also a lot of insights from sociology, geography and anthropology that I could have brought in too so I have a colleague at Birmingham, Jessica Pikett who uh, made this very astute point to me once that just seems totally obvious now that I think about it but that uh, the well-being of individuals uh, is partially a kind of emergent property of the well-being of a community and yeah. vice versa yeah. um, and of places. So we, we have to think much more kind of structurally, particularly when we do policy thinking um, around what promotes well-being. Um, in terms of, so the second question was, how did I get into this kind of thing? Yeah, what made you, yeah. what, you know, most people, I guess, when you're a, uh, maybe an impressionable student, you know, you kind of just fall, you find a supervisor and you do what they do, um, which means you sort of jump straight into one silo, whatever that silo might be. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> uh, I guess I just, I found all the silos really unsatisfactory. Um, yeah. So uh, all the way back when I sort of started undergrad, like I was doing arts law, I left law after two years because I found it really underwhelming. Um, then did a bit of economics, left that as well because I found it really underwhelming. Um, <laughs> You're a hard to impress was... guy. You must be pretty hard to impress. Mate, I mean, not I like know, I'm... Just, yeah, they always felt really incomplete. Um, and I guess I still still have that attitude to a lot of the silos today. Like why yeah. at the margin, I don't understand why you would get like ever more pedantic about like, I don't know, economic decision theory rather than just bring in a whole other big chunk of stuff out of, out of sociology or something like institutions um, yeah. or culture, something like that. I just think that gives you a much more expansive understanding of the world um, than going super deep into a silo. Uh, but I do think that this is like a pretty uh, rough way to do an academic career. Um, <laughs> it's getting a little bit easier, but all the hiring is done by siloed faculties um, most academics think in terms of the top journals of their field to some extent, that's how the yep. signaling happens. So unless you're capable of publishing in top journals across multiple fields, and I think that's usually a matter of having a lot of really good co-authors who can kind of tailor the thinking that you do together to mm. a particular discipline. And I'm very lucky to have that. Um, then I think you're just going to have a really hard time. It's very difficult to signal what it is that you do. It's hard to signal what's valuable about what you do. It's hard to identify your audiences. Every time you move into a new discipline, you have to kind of figure out the tropes of that discipline and, and yeah. the kind of language that they use. Even little things like um, when you publish in psych journals, the formatting is slightly different to how you would publish in econ journals and the kind of go-to statistical methods are different as well. Uh, and a lot of people will just take that as a signal that you're an idiot, not that uh, <laughs> like that your work's just not worth reading because you didn't follow the APA style guide. Um, yeah, so I don't I don't necessarily recommend being uh, a generalist. Yeah, but I do and think that in yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say just like for the people who I think this must be shocking for people who don't who aren't involved in like publishing academic works that like you just said a style guide a style guide. You know, it's like you didn't wear the right clothes to come here. So you're an yeah, idiot. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, when you come across stuff that's unfamiliar, you assume that it must be like an indicator of incompetence on that person's part. Um, and I think that transcends the style guide to, to all sorts of stuff. Um, yep. As soon as you're doing a, taking an angle on a problem that's unfamiliar, um, people will just be kind of thrown by that. <laughs> And so, yeah, okay, so you're sort of like, uh, you're not happy with what you're seeing. H how many other disciplines can we insult? But, you know, it was economics, law. <laughs> and yeah, so I mean, you just thought... They're all good disciplines. Um, that, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. Like, I think they all have <laughs> a lot to offer. Um, I just, I, particularly at that time as an undergrad, I was mostly looking for answers to nihilism. Um, and I didn't okay. feel like that was, that was coming out from many places in particular. And I did a lot of philosophy, but... Um, uh, I think the ANU where I was based, which is one of the world's top philosophy departments, is very analytic in its mm -hmm. philosophical style. And I didn't really know what that meant as an undergrad. Um, but I think what? analytical philosophy is not super interested in nihilistic themes. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, and so and what, just for a bit of clarity on analytics, like what do you mean by analytic philosophy and compare that right. to other So there's this types. distinction in philosophy between analytic and continental philosophy. So roughly like British and American versus European. And then there's the Eastern tradition, which is now starting to become a bit more widely studied. Um, and analytical philosophy tends to have a much more of a kind of formal logical style to the way it analyzes problems. Um, so it tries to uh, create a lot of distinctions uh, and use classificatory regimes and then kind of pit concepts against each other and use mm -hmm. a lot of intuition pumps, which is this method where you kind of look for counterexamples to certain claims um, and then reason through those counterexamples until you arrive at a more compelling conceptual articulation or something like that. Whereas continental, um, I should say maybe the, the famous analytical philosophers are people like Bertrand Russell, Wittgenstein, Whitehead, um, Rawls probably on, on the politics side, stuff like that. And then mm -hmm. on the continental side, uh, I mean, it starts with Kant and Descartes, but I don't, I don't feel like they're that distinct from the analytical tradition. Uh, I would say that continental really starts to distinguish itself um, kind of mid 19th century with the existentialist movement. So yep. um, the style of people like uh, Nietzsche is just radically different from yep. the, the analytical style. Sure. Yeah. And so, okay, so you're looking for maybe a continental style in an analytical department that mm. pushes you out of that silo maybe to find something else? Well, I basically just like bombed out of university at that point. So um, this is a, a story for anyone who like thinks that you can't get into an academic career unless you like tick all the boxes from the very beginning. Yeah, like my this. undergraduate transcript is a dumpster fire. Um, so yeah, I just kind of got over uni, um, read about a bunch of, other stuff that I found interesting. Um, I, I worked as a tennis coach for several years, um, that sort of thing. And then I came yeah. back into development economics, like thinking that I was completely done with kind of well-being and that sort of stuff. Um, and I came into development economics because I was working as an editor for this uh, website called East Asia Forum, which does Asian policy issues. And the guy who ran that was an economist. And he uh, encouraged me to go to some of the conferences that he was organizing. And just the people that I met there, I felt like these were my people. Like they were interested in practical really? problem solving, um, in what's kind of right now, not what's ideal. Uh, but they were still very robust and rigorous about what they were doing. Um, and so, yeah, then I did economics, which was uh, a pretty long slog because I had to do maths, bridging and a bunch of other stuff like that. And then I really fell in love with statistics, um, <laughs> which I think maybe happens to a lot of people. Um, but I'm not sure. You know, I got really enamored with statistics. And when I went to do my PhD, I wanted to do uh, pretty conventional happiness economics, I guess, just like research with uh, life satisfaction data. Mm. And my supervisor, Bob Bruning, is actually an econometrician. So he's specialist in statistics. Um, and we got about... I don't know, two, three months into that project before I decided that I didn't think life satisfaction scales were a particularly valid research instrument, which I presume we'll talk about a bit in this uh, yeah. episode. Um, and then Bob was like, okay, well, explain that to me. And, and I didn't. He was like, yeah, that seems pretty bad to me. Um, <laughs> and then uh, when we... So then after that, I, I felt that what was kind of... The reason why I felt like a lot of subjective well-being studies in particular... Um, was maybe not realizing that its measures were um, questionable uh, and not producing a lot of insights that I thought were all that powerful. 
um, was perhaps because there wasn't enough theory in the discipline. Mm-hmm. And then that's where the, the project came from, this big kind of interdisciplinary mashup of what nice. well-being is. Yeah. Cool. And so, I mean, for the audience, uh, I still like, you know, there's, we're only for this show, we've got at this time in, in the world, we have one published episode. So I, you know, I'm speaking to an audience that I don't know that exists. I assume you're out there. I guess I hope you're out there. Um, bear with us. You know, I don't know what the market share is of talking about, um, <laughs> statistical analysis of, uh, satisfaction with life scales and things like this, but, uh, you know, for those who are interested, stay with us. Um, so what I was really pleased with when I was reading your book was um, firstly how how well it seemed you'd read across these three disciplines. Um, yes. And you're kind of working towards this like grand unifying model of well-being. Like I really did think that sounds like, sounds like uh, you know, if you would probably never call it that yourself. Um, but it did really speak to me that you've you've ticked off and you've sort of aligned the multiple theories that are out there into one sort of central narrative. So when we're talking about well-being, how maybe give us a bit of a a brief overview of what it is you're thinking about and, and in your book and in your work. Okay, cool. Um, so I like the philosophical definition of well-being, like the very high-level definition, which is just it's mm-hmm. what whatever makes someone's life go well. Mm -hmm. Um, or more formally, uh, what is intrinsically good for them. So just in and of itself, it's good for you. And good for is this kind of key term in philosophy, as opposed to like the aesthetic good or the moral good, these kind of things. It's the prudential good is what we're talking about with well-being. So there's this very important, uh, ethical element to it from the beginning and defining it requires a value judgment. And I think Mm -hmm. that um, plays havoc for philosophy of science and is also quite important in the policy domain. And that's kind of what I work on nowadays. Um, but what I was just trying to do in the book, particularly in terms of folding the philosophy stuff in, was to kind of sensitize psychological science to some of these ethical issues. Um, I think what I was trying to explore in the book, but I only realized this after I'd published it, sadly. And um, it's a, you don't have to speak specifically what's in the book, I guess. If it's, if it's evolved since the book, that's also cool. Oh, yeah, cool. No, no, I'm happy to talk about the book. It's just the, the phrasing of it. So uh, I think what the book is about is trying to develop a model that explains people's lived experiences of their own well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, so... This is quite distinct, I think, from like the philosophical project of trying to figure out what is well-being conceptually in all possible worlds. Um, And I think it's also quite different from what subjective well-being studies does, which is this kind of very operationalist thing where it just says subjective well-being is whatever is measured by these instruments. Yeah. Uh, And it's also different to what clinicians are trying to do in terms of defining mental health and that sort of thing, where they sort of have to have a bit more of an objectivist take. Um, whereas I'm really interested in um, people's own experiences. So mm-hmm. the, the original motivation was something like, I mean, when I was younger and depressed and things like that, I was looking for answers. I was like, I'm unwell. Um, can someone give me advice on how to be well? Uh, mm-hmm. And I, like I said earlier, I was pretty underwhelmed by the advice that I found. So yeah. in philosophy, uh, the three major theories of well-being are that it's pleasure, um, that it's about satisfying your desires, um, and that there's an objective list, knowledge, happiness, uh, virtue, etc. Right. And I don't think any of these are very practical. You go up to a philosopher and you say like, oh, I'm unwell. How can I be more well? And they say, I oh, will just have more pleasure. 
<laughs> like that doesn't work. Uh, and also, you know, just satisfy your rational, well-wanted preferences, which is the economics kind of view, also mm-hmm. just doesn't work well. Um, and I think the clinical stuff is much better. I personally, I feel a lot of resonance with like Carl Rogers's work, self-determination mm. theory. These mm-hmm. ideas have a lot of roots in clinical practice. Um, so yeah, I was trying to develop this theory of, of, uh, the lived experience of people's wellbeing. And I think in, uh, as we talked earlier, the different disciplines are all siloed and don't really talk to each other. Um, and so I thought it'd be useful to integrate the perspectives that they had. Um, I thought it was possible to create some theory that was like consistent with all those different perspectives. Um, and I think in philosophy in particular, there's a tendency to always distinguish theories. And I thought, well, why don't we try even just as like a thought experiment, putting them together rather mm-hmm. than pulling them apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look, and I think, so, I mean, do you feel, do you feel that it worked pulling them together? Uh, yeah, I think it did work. It's certainly, I'm quite satisfied with the outcome in terms of like, I could apply the book in my own life. I think I do mm. apply the book in my own life. Um, and so far talking to philosophical audiences about it and, the kind of applied audiences about it, people seem pretty receptive to yeah. what I said there. Um, yeah, yeah I, I just really got this sense reading through, you know, we have this issue in the world, maybe it's social media sort of mediated, but we, often people are talking past each other. And I think silos, you know, the silos of academic practice are a really good example of that where, mm. you know, we just speak sort of different languages. And I think you, I was just so impressed that, you know, you sort of taken the time to say, well, Actually, what if we speak about this the right way and if we frame these various theories correctly sort of uh, uh, amongst themselves, then it all makes sense. There is actually one sort of mm. succinct narrative between them. So, I mean, I don't know if you can qu- quickly sort of go through some one of what's... the narrative. Yeah, yeah is sure. that okay? <laughs> yeah, Sorry. yeah, totally. Um, okay, so the model I put forward has two parts. Um, so one is well-being as an outcome. Or like, what is the state of being well? Something like mm-hmm. that. And then the other is the process by which you achieve that state. Uh, I think historically we've tended to separate those two things. Uh, and I think that's dumb. So in philosophy, there's a tendency to talk about what is well-being and then what is instrumental to it. So how do you get yeah. it? Uh, and my view is that actually when you step back for a second to think about how you get any of the things that might intrinsically be well-being, then you realize that they require each other in yeah. order to get any one of them. And so and, this instrumental intrinsic distinction is kind of a distinction without a difference. Yeah. Um, okay. And then I think in the psych literature, um, there is this distinction between the hedonic theories that yep. are mostly about well-being as an outcome variable, um, experiences and evaluations, and then the eudaimonic theories, which are about the way that you live and whether you're living well. Uh, and I think if we put these two things together, they actually merge quite, quite nicely. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, Frank Martella and, and Ken Sheldon's uh, stuff merging them. And I think Todd Cashdan's done some work on that too. Yeah. It's really good. Like, I think we can just keep progressing on that amalgamation. So in any case, um, well, I probably should also say that I think if you, if you try to achieve well-being in the wrong way, then you won't get there. So yeah. we, we need a kind of a theory of the process too. All right. So, so and then just to pause then, sorry, if are we then, are you, did you just say that the hedonic, you liken the hedonic, the hedonic tradition to like the definition of what is well-being and the eudaimonic to the instrumental version of what is well, of how to get well-being? Is that, were you yeah. making that analogy there? 
I was. I mean, I wouldn't be... Um, like too if I was to defend it. that in an academic article, I would spend a lot of words on that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's quite complex, yeah. Um, like I mean, you've got a whole a book on it. Version... Sorry? I mean, you've written a whole book on it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think the best way of thinking about eudaimonic theories at a high level is that they're about living in a particular way and usually in a way that accords with your human nature. And then in the philosophical tradition, that human nature usually the characteristics that they emphasize is virtue and rationality mm -hmm. um in the psych literature it's much more about the organism the kind of organism that a human is um and what we've evolved to be like and what sort of systems we have i'm much more compelled by the psychology tradition on this front like i actually mm -hmm. think the empirical literature in psych kind of just dis disproves the philosophical tradition um yeah, so anyway, uh, so the outcome, well-being is an outcome I take to have kind of three dimensions. You have a pleasant life, a fulfilling life, and a valuable life. Um, the pleasant life, I think, is broadly in line with what subjective well-being researchers study. And I think that's unsurprising given that subjective well-being research in psych came out of hedonic psychology. Um, and they were interested in happiness, mostly. Mm -hmm. So if I remember correctly, in... Uh, Ed Diener and his son wrote a book, um, the kind of popular book about happiness psych, and his wife has a preface in that. And she says that Ed wanted to study happiness, but he didn't think his colleagues would take him seriously. So he called it subjective well-being to make it sound more scientific. And I think that's kind of totally understandable from Ed. And I agree with his assessment. Um, but also like a lot of the confusion starts there. Yeah. Um, if, yeah, if it was a theory of happiness, we'd have way less uh, confusion today. Um, so then within those three dimensions, I think, uh, so within hed the hedonic dimension, the pleasant life, you've got um, a preponderance of positive over negative mood. So you're generally like feeling good um, and that you're, you're what I call hedonically satisfied, which means that you think your life is pleasant. You would assess yeah. it as pleasant. But I think it's useful conceptually to distinguish between what's hedonically pleasant or hedonic satisfaction and what I call existential satisfaction, which is uh, broadly that you feel your life is fulfilling and valuable. So I find this to be very common among bourgeois university students. And I would count my own experience in there. You get to union, like life's good. You know, you've got friends, you're well-fed, you're entertained. Um, the sun is shining in Canberra, etc. Like life is very pleasant, but you might have ennui, just kind of like existential boredom. You might feel like you don't really know what you want it, what you should do with your life. You don't mm -hmm. really know whether you're a good person, what it means to be a good person. You don't have any purpose. Um, and when you kind of start reaching for potential purposes, uh, if you're afflicted with nihilism, so you think that it's difficult to kind of ground your values in some kind of uh, transcendent uh, structure, then um, then you could you could maintain that your life is very pleasant while also being kind of unwell about it. So then you need to bring in these other ideas, I think. Um, and I feel like these ideas are kind of missing to some extent from American culture. So it's not kind of surprising to me that um, the, a psychology school coming out of America is a bit um, blind to them. Just as a real quick tangent on this, Will Davies in his book, The Happiness Industry, has this amazing chapter on the kind of history of American psychology faculties. And how after World War II, they sent a lot of their best grads over to Europe to study from like the vestiges of Freud's school and Jung and Adler and all this kind of stuff. And they were horrified by what they found. They were like, all these Germans, they just want to talk about metaphysics. 
Um, and they went back to America and started to do more empirical stuff in the kind of behavioral tradition and often ended up in business schools in the marketing department. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting uh, distinction in the history. Um, so anyway, that uh, kind of European tradition is, is more present in the, um, the fulfilling and valuable set. In fulfilling, uh, I basically use the three basic psychological needs from self-determination theory. So as an organism, the human needs autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Uh, and if you have those three things, then you'll broadly feel like your life is fulfilling. You'll feel pretty steady and structured. One thing that I think is kind of missing from that um, paradigm is that uh, in Nietzsche's words, uh, humans need periodically a reason why they exist. Um, like we need a sense of purpose. We need to feel like what we're doing is valuable. Mm -hmm. We need to be plugged into some system of meaning and value. Um, there's this big research that's really quite excellent in positive psychology around meaning in life. Um, but I think that literature, so I put meaning in the, the valuable life camp, meaning and purpose. What's missing from that literature is the answer to nihilism is like, okay, like my purpose is building matchstick models of the Titanic. Um, like maybe like you might have a lot of intrinsic motivation for that. It might give you flow. Um, but it's few people can really kind of sustain a sense of purpose if they don't have a kind of culture around them that reinforces that the things that they're yeah. doing are valuable. Um, so you can even think of just really simple stuff like in a lot of um, middle-class households, uh, it's just very, uh, very encouraged to be a doctor or a dentist or something like that. And like, if you go to university, you get good grades, you make good money, you have a nice house, you have a nice partner, you have good kids, etc. Like your whole society comes around and just kind of celebrates you for being the backbone of civilization. Um, and if that kind of cultural reinforcement of your values is missing, then suddenly the sense that your life is valuable and fulfilling kind of drops out. Um, and then I think there's this huge literature in existentialism in particular, but also some of the early psychoanalytic work like Frankel or um, Eric Fromm that we can use to build this kind of more robust theory of the valuable life, um, which includes feeling like you're a good person and that you're pursuing moral ends uh, and that's quite, I think, substantial to well-being. It's certainly the most important thing for me personally. So I wanted to make sure that that got folded into um, the psych literature. Mm -hmm. uh, I can go on to talk about the process, but if you've got another question in the meantime, hit me up. Uh, I'm No, let's keep going. Let's keep going. All right, cool, cool. All right, so then <laughs> that's right. kind of well-being as an outcome. We want this pleasant life, this fulfilling life, this valuable life. Um, then we need the process by which we achieve it. So that life is going to be different for each individual person. We're all going to have different values that we want to pursue, different activities that bring us joy, different people that we're friendly with that we feel good around. Um, so I think, crucially, we need a theory of learning. So how do we discover the values that are right for us as an individual? Um, I think a lot of the kind of dev literature in the capabilities tradition is a little bit naive about this maybe. So over the last 100 years since World War II or whatever, it's been really important that we just have economic growth um, and that we have broadly an expansion in people's ability to live the lives that they want to live. So this is the capabilities idea. We need not just income, but health, education, political enfranchisement, whatever. That's great. Um, but I think... Even once you have all that, like the constraints on your life are relaxed, you still don't know how to use all these tremendous resources that you have to live a great life because you don't know what the good life is for you. Um, 
Okay, so then I try to develop this model of learning um, that I call the coalescence of being, which kind of harkens back to when I did more philosophy. So the, the basic idea is that uh, I pull it, I, I kind of construct it from a few different psych theories. So the, the first one is self-discrepancy theory from um, Tory Higgins, who was at Columbia. I think he's still active, actually. Um, so his idea, again, is clinical. So he was trying to explain kind of the origins of depression and anxiety. And he said that humans broadly have these kind of three archetypes of the self. They have their ideal self, who they want to be, their actual self, which is who they are, and then their ought self, which is who they think they have a responsibility to be. And then more recently, there's the feared self, which is who you really don't want to be. Um, and so we try to harmonize these concepts, like bring our actual self into alignment with the ideal self subject to a constraint imposed by the ought self. That's one way to think about it. Um, and often you'll get this wrong. So this kind of gives you a high level goal. Like, and I find it easier to explain this with ambitious high level goals, but they don't need to be ambitious. So you think about like, you want to be an astronaut. So you've got to bring your actual self, this like 18 year old, not so fit, not so educated person has to become an astronaut. And then that's going to inform all these lower level goals. Like if you need to be fit, you've got to join a gym, you yeah. probably want to get a personal trainer, you want to buy some TheraBands, like that sort of stuff. So it's going all the way down to your shopping list. Um, then you start doing these things. So you start trying to behave in a way that brings your reality into line with the change that you want to be in the world or whatever. Um, as you go about that process, you're going to get feedback. So some of the feedback is going to be affective. So it's going to be emotional feedback. It's going to be motivational feedback. And some of it's going to be social. So other people are going to give you information about what sort of person you are, for example. And then you're going to have to introspect on that feedback and calibrate these ideal selves and the pathway that you take to them on the basis of that feedback. Um, so for example, if you want to be an astronaut, um, you might think, okay, I need to get fit. And I also need to learn more about astrophysics. So I'm going to enroll in a like uh, extraterrestrial chemistry course or something. Um, so now you're doing these activities. So you're going to the gym, you're going to your, your chemistry classes. And you find that uh, the gym, well, actually, maybe, let's take a positive story first. So first, everything's awesome. You love the gym, you love chemistry, you just double down on it further. Um, and this expands then into your life in a broader way. So you like that the gym makes you buff, you're really impressed with your aesthetics, um, you meet a life partner through gymnastics, you, you, it helps you focus on your chemistry classes, just all going well. So gradually you develop this more kind of integrated identity that weaves all these things together and you get closer and closer to being an astronaut which just makes you feel really good so you're getting a lot of positive affective feedback all the time you really like the people in the gymnastics club so positive social feedback you just keep going but that's unlikely i don't think that happens very often usually you're going to get some kind of conflicting messages that mm -hmm. you then need to think about and, and think through uh so say maybe gymnastics is not going so well um, you've got to think about, well, maybe do I like exercise? It's just not really gymnastics that I like, or maybe I like gymnastics. I just don't like the people at this club. They're all bitches. Yes. I need yeah. to go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, but maybe it's just the case that like everything about gymnastics sucks. Like you don't like exercising. You don't like athletes. Um, and none of it. It's just all bad. All the feedback is bad, yeah. but you're really liking your chemistry classes. 
So now you might think that what we need to do is change the ideal self. So we can't be an astronaut because we just don't want to be that fit. But maybe we could be an earthbound scientist who's using the data that the astronaut sent back. And then that recalibration of your ideal mm-hmm. self changes a lot of the nested goals. And now you're pursuing a bunch of um, slightly different values and behaviors that are giving you broadly more positive rather than negative feedback compared mm-hmm. to what you were doing before. And so generally, you're just kind of steering yourself towards the positive feedback and making these calibrations along the way. Um, there's a lot more I could say about it, um, particularly in terms of like self-determination theory and stuff like that. But the basic idea is that uh, as this process proceeds, you should end up with a preponderance of positive over negative affect. You should be closer to the life that you ideally want to have. So you're going to feel that your life is pleasant. You're going to be satisfied with it. You're going to be autonomously pursuing the things that you want to do. You're going to be building competence in things you care about, and you're going to be hanging out with people that give you positive social feedback and that you vibe with. So there's your fulfilling life. And then you're going to be pursuing values uh, that are compatible with your ought self and that you think are meaningful. Like you're like, astronauts do cool shit. Um, So that's going to take care of the valuable life, um, and you're going to have an identity, which is a substantial part of that valuable Mm. life as well. So this is how the process gets you to the outcome. I hope that was a good summary. Yeah, no, that was, <clears throat> excuse me, that was very, very good. I What I love about what you're talking about is that it's um, that it's an active process, you know? Like, I think I hear this all the time of kids saying like, oh, I'm at uni, but, you know, maybe I'm going to take a gap year because I don't know what I want to do. I mean, probably some, I'm sure you would have said that at some point, I said it too. But no one gives them the advice that you just gave them, which is that actually this is, this is a very active process to be walking. Mm. You know, you can't just sit back, get a job in a cafe and just think like after a couple of months, this thing's just going to click and it's yeah. going to all make sense to me, you know? Um, and there's no, there's no amount of, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but there's no amount of thinking um, that can find that answer that it's like, it's an mm. exploratory thing. You have to be firstly uh, consciously. I don't know if you really spoke about this, but you know, d- should it be a conscious thing of constructing your ideal self? Should you consciously stop, spend time and think about that so that then you can set those sub goals? Are you kind of thinking about it more in an, in an unconscious way? Uh, I definitely think you should do some of it consciously. Um, so I think the two, the two pop cultural tropes that concern me a bit is, yeah. um, is that people always giving you advice. And that's kind of looking outside. You've got to turn inwards, first of Mm -hmm. all, and Mm -hmm. consult yourself for advice. And then the second one is the one that you mentioned. I'm really glad you brought that up. Like, you can't just think about it. Um, So I think there's a tendency in a lot of philosophical and religious circles to think, well, there is the good. It's out there. Um, And if we just sit here and think about what the good is, eventually we'll figure it out. And then we can live in accordance with that. Um, I basically reject that out of hand, but I think it's completely wrong for the individual's personal well-being. So you've got to you've got to try out a few different things, even if you're in a very religious community and you kind of vibe with that. It's still going to have different roles within that community, and you've got to figure out which one's right for you. Um, and I think in figuring that out, some of it's going to be unconscious. Like I I think the intuition is very powerful, very wise, uh, and that we should give it time to send us messages. But the intuition is generally going to be more effective if you feed it information that it can digest. Um, And sometimes you get very complex signals from your intuition. And I think there you really need 
that system one thinking conscious frontal lobe to kind of unpick those signals. Um, so I'll try to give you an example if that's useful. Yeah. And I was just going to say um, like, and I guess the point here is that none of this is necessarily easy either. It's not that, you know, no. just go out there and you'll figure it out. It's also that, but please your example. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely, it's not easy at all. Uh, there's a really great quote from Carl Rogers where he basically says something like that. Like, you know, I'm convinced that this process of self-actualization is not for the faint hearted. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the example for me is that like I was uh, really, really into tennis um, for a long time. Uh, at one point I was, I was on court maybe 45 hours a week and then in the gym. Seriously? Or something. Yeah, like a lot. Um, and then uh, I kind of, I, I started to go back more towards uni, but I was still playing 30 hours a week or something. And then I had this really bad back injury that basically meant that I, I couldn't play at all for about three years. Um, and I was just doing yoga and Pilates, which I really didn't enjoy particularly much. Um, and when I came back from that, um, I just like couldn't play tennis at the level that I was accustomed to. Um, and I, my, my physical abilities had also deteriorated. Like I wasn't as fast as I used to be and that sort of thing. And I kind of got this sense that I would never be able to play tennis the way I used to be able to play it. Mm. Um, and I eventually decided that I just wasn't going to play tennis anymore. Basically. Like I played once a week in DC, just with a friend, mostly to hang out with him. Um, and I really tried not to put any pressure on myself to like play better or anything like that. Um, and it's been, it was quite complex to kind of think through my emotions around that, where I was like, you know, am I letting go of something that I actually really love quite deeply, but it's actually quite painful for me to play it at all because I just feel shit at it now compared to what I used to be capable of. Um, and I think those kind of experiences where some exogenous shock sort of forces you to reassess a lot of quite fundamental aspects of your personality you're not going to be able to work through that just unconsciously. Like you've got to yeah. let the, let the emotions come through, yeah. let them feel you, feel how you're feeling, but then you also have to reflect on, on what's going on. Yeah. Cool. And I mean, I mean, that's, that's, um, that idea of like suffering for growth, you know, everyone gets mm. it in the gym. Like you have to work hard and that hurts for, for gains or whatever for yeah. growth. Um, you don't see that so much in like sort of the sort of, yeah, they're really like the happiness sort of industry. I think you wouldn't mm. really get that. I think it's coming now and, and people have mm. written books about it, like, um, Kashtan and, um, and uh, Bizworth Dina that you talked about. Mm. Um, and you know, a few other people that I'll probably forget, but so I think that's just, an, that's just another important point, I guess, mm. really, isn't it? That this is not comfortable. Um, mm. but probably that, um, that is is an indicator of, of of growth in some form or another um yeah my, my ex had a really nice line in this regard she said well-being is about wholeness not happiness and wholeness mm. is much more demanding than happiness yeah um, interesting yeah. wholeness yeah. i like that um yeah, I've written it down a note, which is what do you like? We won't go into that just yet, but <laughs> um, so have you thought like, so you've got this theory, Why? another reason I think why I like, I mean, there's lots of reasons why I like this stuff that, you, that you've put together, but we've been uh, working on a project um, where we're kind of getting towards, we, you know, we're really quite fed up with this issue of language in well-being, and that, and that mm -hmm. it's just so poorly 
um, used really. Like, you know, you talk about well-being, we can't even spell it the same way, let alone like things like happiness. Are we talking about happiness, meaning a positive emotion or are we meaning like as a multidimensional concept as akin to well-being? Like, I don't have mm. to tell you about all these issues. So what we did was we did this, um, this big sort of review of, um, all the measures that are out there. Like, you know, people have taken the time to operationalize what they thought well-being was and sort of long story short, um, I'll put a, a thing to the preprint um, as in the show notes, but we get to this point where we've synthesized, you know, we find like say more than 400 different words that people are using in their measures of well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you synthesize them down, they kind of, it's actually really about 21 different things. Okay. What yeah. I loved about, you know, they're mostly outcomes because obviously they're measures. So they're things that you could, they're probably actually confused between is this a, is this instrumental to well-being, like you say, or is this an outcome of well-being? Like that's not clear at all, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I loved is that yours, um, so we're sort of mo- moving towards this idea of forming a taxonomy, you know, of yeah. what do we mean by mental health and well-being? And a couple of the collaborators that we've been working with, I've kind of mentioned this thing of like, would you, would you impose a theory or some sort of structure on this taxonomy? So you've got all these mm-hmm. domains, but do you want to sort of map out how these things are related? I've mm. probably been resistant to that so far because I think let's just get them out there first and then maybe interdisciplinarily we could, we could think about something like that. But I did, mm. I did note while I was reading your book that basically everything that we had in those 21 different dimensions mapped somewhere to your work. Mm. Um, which I just thought was exciting. I don't, I don't really know what to do with that fact, but I just thought it was kind of it was kind of cool. I felt like you basically haven't missed anything from the literature. Is, is basically how it seemed to me. Okay, cool. Thanks. I mean, that was kind of the objective. Like, try to integrate as much as you can, uh, and try to make sense of that mm. landscape, um, rather than say, well, actually, these things that some people think are well-being are, are something different. Yeah. Um, and only this is well-being. Yeah. Try to put all that together as best as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. On the well-being sort of definition thing. So someone, you know, we've just spent maybe half an hour on like your model of, of subjective well-being mm. or, or well-being. Someone on the street asks you like, what does it mean to be well? What, what's your answer? Do you have one? What does it mean to be well? Or what does it mean to, um, yeah, know, what is well-being? Um, yeah, there's a quote. So one, one line, uh, I think it's from, so Gandhi has a version of it and Goethe has a version of it. So Gandhi's is something like it's when, uh, how you think, how you, f- wait, I'm going to pull it up. I'm gonna pull it up All right. Yeah. Go for it. Go for yeah, it. Give me a second here. I'll have it pretty quick. Um, okay. Where are we at? Guessing Gandhi quote comes up with a fair few, <laughs> a fair few results. Yeah, here we go. Happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. Yeah. Quite like that one. And then... Uh, I don't have the Goethe one close to hand. Okay, something um, like it. But I think the Goethe one is actually in my book as, as, one, of the, as one of the chapter headings. Um, so give me one sec. That's all right. I was hoping to hold up your book, but I bought it as a, on Kindle. Oh, so okay. it's kind of like <laughs> not really as, um, Next. as satisfying. Um, yeah, here we go. To think is easy to act is hard, but the hardest thing of all is to act in accordance with your thinking. Yeah. Cool. Um, 
So I think uh, another way of phrasing this um, is from Valerie Tiberius's book on well-being, which is it's called "Well-being is Value Fulfillment," and I really like her theory. Uh, and she thinks that well-being is about value fulfillment, but that you require particular sorts of values, and they're values that have to integrate or make consistent your emotions, your motivations, and your cognitions. Mm. And I think this notion of kind of harmony or consistency, lack of dis- dissonance, integration, that you're a grown individual, that you're whole, and that that whole thing is coherent. Um, and so if you feel that you have strong reasons for doing something, but your emotions point in a very different direction, that's a problem. You need to harmonize that in mm. some way. So that's broadly my short definition. Yeah, cool. So I, I um, you know, it's World World uh, Happiness Day the other day and the World, yeah. you know, the World Happiness Report comes out and we got a phone call from the media team at work saying like, you know, the radio wants to call and see why is Australia okay. like number 12 and, you know, just whatever, the same sort of thing. <laughs> you thought we'd be higher? Yeah, I did think so. But yeah. we have like a very large migrant population and I think as they transition to a better life, they often down the average slightly yeah well i mean and here's this is kind of where i'm going and this is not really like i'm in no position to be um insulting that organization that pulls it together i think it's a really valuable thing that they're doing but Mm. it's this confusion of happiness you know it's Mm. this confusion where if you look at the way that they define happiness it's really really particular and you know the thing that separates us from the finish who are Mm. you know top every year i think one of the bigger things is like trust in institutions Mm, yeah which is not something that i think traditionally people would put under under happiness yeah so yeah i just find this it's just like it's at every level this confusion mm. Any yeah comment I, mean, there I, on... I agree sorry i was so gonna say i guess i didn't really have a question there in the end sorry okay, about that, sure. but any comment yeah, on that yeah um well yeah so i guess um there is a bit of confusion so i think a lot of people want um a way of thinking about progress and development yeah. that goes beyond GDP, but then yeah. also even beyond the capabilities framework. So beyond uh, health, education, environmental quality, enfranchisement, yeah. etc. And so you get something like the New Zealand wellbeing framework, yeah. um, which has like all that kind of objective stuff. Mm-hmm. And then also a few things that are more kind of psychological variables. Yeah. Like and uh, and just, just for context, I guess objective stuff, we're talking about like quality of housing, availability of, of, of these things. Yeah, stuff you can like see and feel. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Something that you can verify independently of someone's opinion. Yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's interesting that because I guess the the World Happiness Report, like the authors of that, and like Jan, for example, is a co-author of mine. Yeah, on, the, yeah. work. Um, so uh, most of them are pretty committed to kind of life satisfaction as yeah. as an all-encompassing alternative to GDP and they want to see it used in cost-benefit analysis instead of income and prices and that sort of thing. So I think in some ways it's actually a coup that the World Happiness Report pulls in more than okay. um, life satisfaction. So I'm probably <laughs> like on board with that. Um, yeah, and I think Frank Martella, um, who I, I mentioned earlier, he's Finnish um, and he gets asked every year to comment on the the World Happiness Report, and he has a has a blog somewhere that I can try to dig out for you for the show notes, maybe where sure. he explains what he thinks it is about Finland. Cool. And he also says that yeah, it's mostly about like institutions, and it's mostly about the social safety net and yeah. the way that that pulls up the bottom yeah. of the distribution, where you yeah. get really big improvements in people's well being. 
Um, whereas folks, stuff that helps the top, like income growth, um, yeah. not that relevant. Yeah, no, and, and that's, I guess, that's exactly the point that I'm trying to get. I'm not to say that any of those objective things are not valuable. They're obviously extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, but that idea of, you know, because I've seen like already New York Times articles saying like, how do we be as happy as them? But, you know, obviously coming from a different dif- <clears throat> a different definition of what they mean by happiness. Mm, yeah, Even the totally. choice of what to call this show, like I, I've stayed away from the term happy as yeah. best as I can uh, until sure. now, obviously, uh, because yeah. I think it's just the, it's kind of, it is in my mind, the catch-all word that, that kind of most people sort of get what you mean, even if it doesn't really have mm. a very clear definition. Um, so going back to your model, I know... Um, this is, you know, kind of took a weird segue there and then we'll come back sort of learning as a host. But um, what are you trying to do with, what are you trying to do with the model? Like, is this something that you're, how, in what way are you trying to sort of um, translate that into the world? If yeah, right. Good question. I guess my thinking on this has evolved a lot just in the last two years. Oh, cool. um, so I'm writing a pop book at the moment. I guess I hope it'll be out uh, well, it'll be with the publisher at the end of the year, and then it's kind of on their commercial cycle. So I think sometime in 2024. Yeah. Um, You've got a title. But yeah, originally my objectives were like self-help. Um, and I find it very frustrating that a lot of the wisdom about well-being is so scattered um, in these different silos. And then it's like a real tendency to have kind of three cute studies that show something and then to just run wild with that and write a pop book um, and have these like chapter length anecdotes and stuff. Uh, I find that really frustrating because then you have to read like 300 pages to get one small idea. Um, Could have been a blog post. um, Whereas I think actually books, like we shouldn't just have blog posts. That's really bad. Um, We should have books, but they should be like meatier, more substantial. So yeah, my interest was mostly in self-help. And I guess I still hope that the, even academically, this book will shake things up a bit in terms of, orienting thinking a bit more towards practice uh, mm. like how do you get well-being in your life um i find a lot of the scientific and philosophical scholarship just not very helpful on that front actually um i when i first wrote it i did think a bit in terms of like okay well once we sort of know what well-being is how can we then translate that into public policy um, but now my view is that that's really just like the wrong headed way to think about public policy. That's, uh, in the public policy literature. And I'm thinking in particular of the public administration, public management literature, that's about sort of everyday governance. Uh, this is like roundly criticized this kind of view that, oh, we just, the scientists kind of figure it out and then government does it. Uh, that results in shit policy, um, almost universally. Uh, and unfortunately I see most of my colleagues moving in this direction, like trying to create databases of happiness policies um, that really aligns well with the way scientists think about evaluation in terms of randomized control trials. But most public policy is not a discrete intervention. It's not like we did X and now we're going to assess it. Most public policy is a system um, that delivers a huge range of stuff, a lot of complex interrelated outcomes. So you think about health, um, the health system is enormous. It's like a massive part of GDP. It's got millions of people working in it. Um, and your health is a composite thing out of all sorts of stuff. Um, and so it's not really the case that we can like discreetly do interventions on public health, um, broadly conceived. Um, there's also then a whole bunch of issues around political legitimacy, procedural legitimacy, um, and administrative stuff. So how, how can we change the 
the way governance is done so that it promotes well-being um, and that's kind of what I'm working on now so uh, I hope that the book still contributes to the self-help side mm-hmm. um, but my original ambitions to kind of think about public policy using the model I've jettisoned substantially mm-hmm. one thing I'd still like to do is that I think there's too much of an emphasis in a lot of the research or a lot of the kind of science into policy scholarship to think in terms of um, getting metrics first and then using the metrics to figure out what causes well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think that works. I mean, quite a, well, it does in some cases, but because of the systems issues and a bunch of other stuff, I think that's a, a, a clumsy way of doing things. I think what we want to do instead is have a kind of well-articulated mechanical understanding of well-being, and then we can use that to develop policy ideas mm-hmm. uh, and think theoretically about what policies might work, what policies might not work, how we might evaluate those kind of policies, given that they're very hard to evaluate. Um, so I'm hoping that the book still informs policymaking of that type. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's really cool. Uh, something else I've got from reading your from your reading your work, and I read through. Um, I've got it right in front of me. I can show this one. It's oh, got cool. a coffee stain on there. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> your work with, way. yeah, I think so. It shows that at least um, it was near me, near enough to my coffee. Yeah. Um, so this is again. I'll put it in the show notes. Mark Fabian and Jessica Piquet. It's titled "Be Happy: Navigating Normative Issues in Behavioral and Wellbeing Public Policy." But again, what I thought you're really hammering, like what you're really nailing across all of your stuff, is this idea that um, what psychology, let's say, what psychology is doing at an individual level is valuable. Um, what psych, you know, what maybe economics is doing or public policy is doing is is equally valuable, or you know, what forget about equally, just like it's valuable in its own right. But if you try and take the the techniques and the methodologies from one and apply it to the other, it just completely breaks down. And I think I saw that with some of some of the life satisfaction work that you've been talking about. Uh, you know, the difference between measuring life satisfaction of an individual versus mm. of you know the satisfaction of a nation. Mm. That you know they, these are really different things, and they, and one doesn't necessarily work for the other. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a few reactions to that. I actually think life satisfaction kind of, a bit like supply and demand, yeah. sort of works better at this kind of mid-level. Yeah. Um, so supply, like rational choice theory, which is the workhorse in economics, doesn't work at the individual level. Yeah. Um, it's totally shit, like really flimsy. Um, at the aggregate level of market behavior, it's beautiful. Uh, it works so <laughs> powerfully. Um and then again, at the very macro level of kind of whole national economies starts to become much wobblier again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of feel like that with life satisfaction as well. Like life satisfaction tells you so, so little about an individual. So we're doing research at the moment. It's kind of an adversarial collaboration um, where we interview people for like 45 minutes about what their life satisfaction is determined by and how they map that to their scale, how they use their scale. Um, and like the kind of complexity that people are trying to communicate with this one number that they give yeah. you is, is so vast. Um, and I, I don't see why we would try to use this one number to capture that. Um, at the same, by the same token, I think saying that, you know, I don't know, the Finns are 8.1 and Australia is 7.9. And like, what does that mean? Uh, like, I don't think that tells you anything, basically. Um, and I think the whole like running regressions on international comparison data is really fraught. I mean, some of these countries have 
15 times the population of some other ones, totally different cultures, different uh, demographic makeups, whatever. I'm pretty skeptical of that sort of work. But at the kind of uh, this medium level of, say, like a town or something yeah. like that, or looking yeah. at a map uh, and seeing kind of pretty substantial differences in some cases across parts of that map, then you can start to feel like, oh, well, there's something here that we should really dig into. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of uh, open to life satisfaction at, at some scales, I think can be quite, quite powerful. Yeah, and, and I guess that's the nuance, I guess, of what I'm appreciating in your work is is that nuance that I just, I haven't seen it so clearly anywhere else, I don't think. Well, thanks, um, Appreciate no, it. That's okay. <laughs> that's absolutely fine. Yeah, and I, and I guess, um, you know, I also read um, Alexandrova's book and I thought that was, um, you know, of a, of a similar sort of style, obviously. That idea of mid-level theories was, again, um, yeah. I, I think throughout that book and that idea of, uh, um, I was just reading as well this morning your, your paper on um, democratizing well-being measurement. And it's just, oh, it's, that's, yeah, that's no, okay. <laughs> that's okay. No, it's, <laughs> it's just amazing. Once again, like I'll we'll talk, talk a little bit about our wellbeing intervention that we've got in a, in a, or maybe we won't even talk about, it, I don't know yet, but, um, it's once again, it's like, man, we're doing something so similar to this. And then here's, mm -hmm. here's this group on the other side of the world doing almost exactly the same. I think that yeah. we've yeah. probably like intuited it a bit more naturally, um, because mm -hmm. we don't have yeah. that sort of philosophical philosophical sort of political background mm. um but again you're sort of putting into words what we're sort of um what we're sort of working on without that that next level of, of sort of um academic or philosophical rigor so it's just it's really exciting to read basically mm. um thanks no that's yeah great. i should say i think we um we're kind of coming behind practitioners on that work so i think in the development policy space in particular in social policy in mental health research yeah there's been tons of effort to try to do more participatory public policy and participatory yeah. interventions where you get the people who are going to be affected by whatever it is that you're doing to come in very early in the process and define what they want the outcome to be how it should be measured that sort of mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. um and yeah that hasn't had the most coherent um like epistemological architecture around it or ethical architecture around it and then yeah. meanwhile there are these other debates um going on in in science in particular around uh conceptualization and measurement and stuff like that and i, th I hope that our paper kind of tries to pull those two things together yeah um, but we're very much inspired by the practitioners that we see and we're just trying to articulate what it is that they're doing yeah no and i mean that's the exact experience that i had this morning so yeah, um I don't know if this is irrelevant or not, but you know, like literally I was, was in preparation for this. I was up early yeah. this morning reading some of those papers could have been earlier, obviously, but uh, you know, on the days is sometimes how it has to be done. Um, and I'm reading these things. It's like, it's like early in the morning, I'm sending them to my colleague, Yup, who's uh, been on the show um, by this oh, stage. Cool. And, and, um, and it's like, you know, he's today writing up, you know, summarizing a, a, a project that we've been working on. And it's like, here's the reference of someone who's done basically exactly what we've just done. Um, we had yeah, no cool. idea, obviously, that it was out there. And, and again, mm. you've given us a little bit more structure than, than probably what we had. Um, mm. But it's just, I don't know, it's just such a cool thing. So I'm yeah, pleased. Yeah, it is a great feeling. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is funny. It's like, I don't know. It's, a, you know, talk, people talk about the zeitgeist. I'm kind of more and more... Um, like I'll probably believe that more and more this idea that, you know, there's kind of an idea in the air and people are sort of yeah. all ticking onto it around the world at the same time. So it's kind of nice. Um, in terms of, in terms of then that, that, that paper, um, 
like you've you've kind of mentioned this idea that that um you know this idea of technocracy I, i've seen that now it's in it's in the paper today we've sort of spoken about it a little bit via email like talk about what you want to see in the world what what is it that um is getting in the way when okay, it comes to sure, yeah, technology um yeah well so i guess uh, i think we're in a high tide of anti-elite sentiment and i think you know with trump and brexit and populism yeah. everywhere yeah. and all that um and i think a lot of the roots of that are in the overreach of technocracy mm-hmm. uh and a kind of bit of a hangover from the 80s so before i was doing well-being work i was doing a lot of economic policy my first book was on on mixes of government and market tools in public policy and in that book, we talked about how the 1980s was this kind of like golden age of uh, really good technocratic uh, reform. So the, yeah, Also, oh, I was going to interrupt. Can you just give me a quick definition of, of technocracy? Yeah, sure. So it's ruled by experts. Yeah. Um, so decision-making uh, in the context of public policy is handed over to experts of some sort. The, the canonical example is central banking. Um, so central banking used to be handled by governments, by elected representatives. Um, and very good evidence that they cocked it up repeatedly. So it's always useful for a government to have loose monetary policy going into an election because it kind of froths the economy. Uh, and so everything seems like it's going well under this government, but then once they get elected, then uh, that comes back to bite you in the ass. So mm. since we've had independent central banks with these inflation reduction mandates, we've had much steadier monetary policy, much more predictable macroeconomic conditions. And there's still tons wrong with macro. Um, but I do think, you know, we're, we're in a much better spot than we were like 70 years ago. Um, so yeah, in the eighties, uh, that was a, a, a kind of tumultuous macroeconomic period. We had stagflation, um, uh, which we're kind of experiencing a bit at the moment as well. So a period of low growth, high unemployment, high inflation, it's kind of quite, uh, scary. Um, and the solutions to that were all in massive microeconomic adjustments broadly towards more market forces. So we had to stop price controls, reduce subsidies, float exchange rates, generally allow the market to allocate resources in a lot of areas rather than central planning. Um, and that worked really well. And it was informed by the kind of thing I was talking about earlier. So not like evidence in the RCT way that we think about it today, just kind Mm. of painstakingly pieced together economic theory that was like logical, had some empirical basis, this kind of stuff. We felt like we understood things pretty well. Uh, And I think broadly the the legacy of that um, in the countries where it was done under left-wing governments like Australia, Canada, um, the Scandinavian countries has been really good. In the US and the UK as well, it was quite good, but much more like ideologically prosecuted by the Thatcher and Reagan administrations. And so there's, there's a lot of bad baggage as well. Um, and I think after that period, um, economists in particular became a bit like arrogant. They were like, we kind of, wow, we figure it all out. And really like the public can just go and live their lives. They're going to have a good time because we're going to keep everything rolling. Um, and since then we've had this explosion in inequality at the very top end. Uh, and a lot of unsustainable stuff, which seems to be a consequence of economists' models being a bit limited. Um, And I think a lot of economists still think that they can just solve this using analysis and that public policy should just be a matter of, and I used to think this, full disclosure, so the public elects representatives that they trust, the representatives go to the the technocrats and say, um, 
okay, these are the issues we want dealt with. Give us some options. The technocrats mm. say, here are the three best options. And then mm. the politicians pick the one that's most normatively aligned with what they care about. Um, I, I think broadly that doesn't work. Uh, that's just kind of like a fantasy uh, that economists have. But unfortunately, I think the well-being movement, um, as it comes out of science at least, is very much kind of piggybacking on this idea. So they're like, we just need national well-being accounts and we need scientific development of well-being policy. And yeah. then we can just have a psychocracy, so a technocracy of psychologists. And this is what Jessica's always complaining about, my co-author on that paper. Um, and I think this is particularly problematic because in economics, the definition of well-being is whether people can satisfy their own preferences. And yeah. that's how nudges work. In psychology, though, there's a view that your preferences might be harmful to your well-being because your well-being is like, good psychological functioning or happiness or whatever it might be. And so you run into this very dangerous Brave New World territory where uh, a technocracy is giving advice to a, an elected official, a decision maker that is against the citizen's interests or against the citizen's preferences yeah. on the grounds that it's going to be good for their well-being or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that like really is a toxic mix with anti-elite sentiment, with kind of populism and all that kind of stuff that we have going on at the moment. Um, yeah, so I'll stop there, but we're working on a kind of alternate paradigm. Anyway, back to you. Yeah, no, no, it's completely fine. So let's talk about the alternative paradigm because I, th I think uh, the question that's in the back of my mind, I don't know whether it can't, it, like, whether it exactly applies to this, but this idea that, you know, the scientific method is obviously very powerful. It has its place, but it's not everything. And mm. I'm, I'm wondering whether, um, you know, from your multidisciplinary like background, what else are you seeing that would have more more of a place here? Yeah, nice. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. So I think we want to put multiple things together and the scientific yeah. method and the robustness that that brings in terms of knowledge yeah. generation is a crucial piece of the puzzle. Um, mm -hmm. Then we also need to have like political legitimacy, um, yeah. procedural legitimacy. What do you mean by people... that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I mean, the people like, need to feel like they are in charge of their worlds. Yeah. Um, yep. If I give a, a kind of acidic example so the most powerful piece of political rhetoric in australian history i would say over the last 30 years was that statement i think by alexander downer from adelaide um with in relation to boat arrivals um, and refugees that we will decide who comes to this country and the conditions on which they do so mm. um and there's and that's kind of reflected in the brexit rhetoric around taking back control and all this kind of stuff um if people feel like their politicians are talking to some like unclear cabal of scientific people and business interests and all sorts of stuff like that and not to the public, then they'll mm. start to feel very disenfranchised. And yeah. then we'll end up with a lot of things that are very concerning to the technocrats. Like Trump's assault on free trade globally um, was a huge disaster from the economic profession's point of view. So I think we need to have uh, scientific robustness, this kind of political enfranchisement. And then the third mm. thing is related to the political enfranchisement, but is um, kind of the ethics in the context of well-being. So not having the scientists define what well-being is, what makes a life yeah. go well, yeah. but letting citizens tell you what it is that makes their life go well. Now, mm. obviously, sometimes citizens are going to say stuff that is kind of wrong, um, but that's why you need a, a forum, a kind of deliberative mechanism in which you have the people who implement the policy, so the practitioners, we call them, yep. the people who are affected by the policy, so the citizens or the lived, people with lived experience, and the technical experts all together 
and not and and crucially they have to be sharing power and they have to be learning from each other so it's not the standard consultation model where the government has already made a decision heavily constrained by what its technocratic advisors yeah. have told it and then yeah. comes to the public and says do you approve or whatever it's much more deliberative than that um, and we have a situation where the technical experts have to come in and be open to the idea that the citizen is going to know more than them about crucial mm-hmm. issues like what mm-hmm. well-being is and how it should be measured. Mm-hmm. Um, and then similarly, that the practitioner is going to bring a lot of really important insights in terms of what's implementable. So I'll give you just one hopefully quick example on that. Doesn't um, the scientific community, particularly economists, think that public policy is like synonymous with cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. Um, if you talk to people on the ground in social policy, in health, in education, almost universally, they complain about cost-benefit analysis, that they are forced to uh, crowbar the complexity of what they're doing and the difficulties of measuring it into this framework that is passed down by some treasury bureaucrat in London or in Canberra or wherever it might be, who doesn't implement policy, they just pay for it. Um, mm-hmm. And they don't know anything about this particular area and its, its uh, richness and its complexities. Yeah. And so the practitioner is going to tell you a lot about how day-to-day this area of policy happens, what measures would be useful to them, what uh, decision-making structures are going to be effective, all this kind of stuff. So we are trying to develop a methodology for developing, you mentioned Anna's work before, these mid-level theories, so context-specific well-being frameworks for areas of policy. And that might be a demography, it might be something like social care, it might be a geographic area, like a national park or a town or whatever, mm. where we bring these three forms of expertise together, they learn from each other, they share decision-making power, and then we maintain that scientific robustness, so we maintain some level of rigor, but we also have these other normative values in there that we care about. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And like I said, we've just finished this piece of work, um, which is basically like in your language, it's in the mid-level theory of, or in the context mm. of um, mental disorder. So what does okay. well-being look like? That's what, again, reading your, your um, what's it called, like Drive to Thrive or something, the charity that you were working with? Or uh, it's called Turn to Us, but we Turn were to us, sorry. theory of thriving for them. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, okay, sorry. So just, it was yeah, obviously pretty... it was pretty Thrive, hard. not Survive, not just Yeah, survive. okay, thank yeah. you. So anyway, so like <laughs> that was a particular context. We've been working with a, an organization in Australia for this exact thing of like, can we, you know, we often the caricature, I guess, definition of well-being, um, we use it all the time, but, you know, like mm. feeling good and functioning well. Yeah. People with a mental illness would say to themselves, I don't feel good, I don't function well, mm. therefore well-being is kind of off the table for me. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's obviously not the, that's, I think that's not what the literature says, number one, but secondly, mm. it's just not the um, experience that we want to be giving to these people. So working mm. now with those with a lived experience or a living experience um, has been exactly so, uh, so, so powerful. And I was just so mm-hmm. it's, that's why it was just perfect timing. It's just funny how these things <laughs> Great. sort of fall out, but, um, really cool. Uh, the other thing, I guess I was thinking while you were talking there was like the cost benefit analysis, it really is geared to one outcome, you know, like the cost and the benefit on one outcome. Mm-hmm. How are you, how, are you sort of factoring in, you know, because, you know, well-being is obviously multidimensional just to begin with, that's complex enough, but, mm. but you obviously don't want to replace, um, other important metrics like health, like quality of life with a focus on well-being. You, mm. you know, it's, this is not a replacement thing. This is a complementary thing I'm assuming. Um, yeah. how, how will your, uh, this framework that you're building help to make this a, like a multifactorial analysis? 
Yeah, great question. I guess that is the research question. Okay, ways. cool. So I'm hoping to partner with, uh, which I probably can't announce this publicly yet, That's okay. but like some, some governments in the UK um, uh, who are developing kind of well-being frameworks for use in policy. And then the question is like, how will they be used in policy? Mm. Uh, as far as I can tell from New Zealand, it's kind of underwhelming, but maybe not. Like it hasn't been used that much in New Zealand. They're still relying a lot on legacy methods, but like, that's fine. Like, I don't, I don't actually think we should be that dramatic yeah. in this changeover because I no. think uh, sometimes the way I think about it is like, we have really quite good measures and good methods for working with income and prices and economic mm -hmm. growth. Mm -hmm. So the methods are good. The analysis is good, but the values are wrong. Like we don't care about that stuff as much as we used to. So, but when we turn over here to where the values are right, like the kind of well-being, sustainability, that sort of nexus, um, the measures and particularly the analysis, so how we make that compatible yeah. with the public policy architecture we have is much messier. Mm. Um, and so we, we can't just jump from this to that, um, but we also shouldn't hang on to this way that's causing damage. Um, so I find a lot of economists are like, oh, we can't use this stuff because it's not compatible with cost-benefit analysis. And I'm like, why is cost-benefit analysis a good thing? We see plenty of examples where it's shit. Um, it works really well for big infrastructure projects, I think, um, and defense spending and that kind of stuff. Um, much worse for like community infrastructure, yeah. complex interventions like social work, um, schools Well, I guess things policy. where the outcomes aren't as easily, um, you know, assessed. Yeah. Can't like, quantify yeah, it easily, can't yeah. put it into a unidimensional index easily, can't monetize yeah, exactly. it easily. Yeah. Right. All the usual things that economics sucks at. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know why the economists aren't willing to let that one go. Just be like, yes, that is indeed <laughs> the things that we are bad at. Um, maybe there could be an alternative. It's funny. You just, you, I guess from the outside, you probably assume, I think I make this mistake all the time. You assume that, you know, the experts, the technocrats or whatever, like you think they're, they're above human nature in a way. You know, but what I'm hearing here is like, absolutely, they're not. It's like, this is the way we do it because it's kind of the way we've always done it. It's probably the way we know how to. So we're comfortable doing this. Um, so, I, so yeah, anyway, um, just a quick question. I'm like, how are you, this kind of work, it's really exciting. Obviously, it sounds like right. You're kind of answering, a, it seems to me that you're answering a question that nobody even realizes in it is an important question yet. Like we're not even, most of the rest of the world seems to be not even noticing that this is an important question. By the time they've figured that out, you will hopefully already have an answer. So how are you, um, is it difficult to fund this stuff? Um, I don't know, because I've only just reached the point in my career when I'm starting to apply for large grants. Okay. Um, so far, no, I guess. Or like there seems to be decent enthusiasm for this stuff. Yep. Um, Great. I think it helps that I'm in the UK, which I think is the the government that's the most interested in this stuff with the deepest pockets. So like obviously yeah. Bhutan and New Zealand more interested in it, but maybe not quite as much architecture as in the UK. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't find it too hard to get funding for it. It it is difficult to find partners sometimes. So anytime you're working with government, you know, there's going to be a lot of concerns about leakage of information out yeah. before the government's yeah. willing to talk about it, that sort of thing. I, I think it's fundamental to my attitude to wellbeing policy that we're going to have to muddle through and that there will be mistakes initially. Yeah. No, I agree. This kind of stuff. And, and that makes uh, partners nervous. 
um, government partners in particular, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. So I'm working with some charities as well, and they're much more open to kind yeah. of moving fast and breaking things. Yeah. Great. <laughs> nice. All right, cool. So I had one more question that I just want to ask. So we were, I think yes. we've been pretty technical this conversation so far, which is, mm. which has been really enjoyable. I have to say, um, you've you've got I'll, I'll link this out a video um from a recent conference about why you know some of the issues that you think there are with life satisfaction measures i think it probably applies mm. to many other sort of well-being measures so we can just people can watch that video i think it's like 20 minutes um no. i wish i was at that conference by the way but that's that's a different story okay. you know so you're, you're basically saying um there's an issue with uh there's a potential issue with um with the validity of some of the, like particularly, let's just say life satisfaction measures. Let's focus on that mm. specifically because I think that's what you're focusing on. I think it was like some of your preliminary work is sort of saying like, you know, it might not be as bad as what we think, but there might be a, a bit of a question mark or a bit of an asterisk on some of this stuff. How much, when you sort of look around at, you know, the literature so far, like does that put a big asterisk on, like to what degree does that give you, does that shake your belief in some of the sort of the, the papers that are out there? Um, it's a tough question. So, cause it's a pretty fundamental thing. You're basically like, if we're saying yeah. all of these measures are based on these, these indices, um, and there might be a, you know, a fundamental flaw with them. So we find it extremely difficult, if not impossible to create sign reversals. So if an effect is positive, we can't make it go negative. Um, so it's really about, Say more about that. What do you mean by that? Um, so all right, let's just take income because it's the most studied correlation. So yeah. uh, there's a very famous kind of curvature in the income life satisfaction relationship that when you're poor, it has really big effects. And then once you hit the kind of global middle class, it flattens off very rapidly. Um, I don't think it's possible for us, regardless of how we like, uh, if we take the most extreme negative results that we find in some of our work, like discouraging results, I guess, there's no way for us to make that relationship go downwards. Like they're, they're, we can't make income People... reduce your well-being. Right. Um, so that's what I mean by a sign reversal. Yeah. So a plus or a minus in front. Um, and I think broadly, any of the results that are big, consistent correlations, like health is good for your well-being um, or good for your life satisfaction, rather migration from a relatively underdeveloped to a developed country is good for your life satisfaction. Uh, this kind of stuff, I don't think we can change that. Um, so it's really a question of the precision rather than the the gist. Like I yeah, think okay. the, the gist is pretty good. Um, my concern, I guess my deeper concern is that uh, I, I don't find the a lot of the high level analysis using life satisfaction, particularly earth shattering. Like, so a lot of the epidemiological work that's like, oh, relationships are good for your wellbeing and you know, being part of a community is good for you. I'm like, duh, like, I just don't, yeah, I feel like if you sit in the armchair or you read the philosophy or whatever, like these, these themes all come through. I, I don't think we need to kind of reinvent the wheel statistically. Um, the more complex, difficult stuff like self-actualization or this, this comment that I made earlier about the well-being of communities as an emergent property of that place that relies on some complex systems-based analysis. Mm. Um, that sort of work requires quite precise instruments, I think, a lot of the time. Um, and if life satisfaction is not precise, then it's going to hamper us in doing that work. Uh, and I think that's quite concerning to me. Um, 
I'm very skeptical of any results in life satisfaction research that have very small effect sizes, yeah, yeah. statistically significant. We're using these massive data sets like yeah. Hilda and the World Value Survey and stuff. It's going to be statistically significant just because the N is so huge. Um, if the effect size is like 0.012 of a point or something, this is just not relevant. Like, who cares? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't really think that we can turn that into public policy. Like, the 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 policy issue there is going to be some bigger political economy structural story about getting post-capitalist post-protestantism something like that um yeah so that i'm skeptical of a lot of these like just grinding out empirical research that you know in a publish or perish ecosystem people are going to do that i'm not uh, upset about them for doing that but i don't think we're learning much from those kind of studies the the issue that i'm more concerned about is that there's a huge investment in life satisfaction scales as the instrument of choice in our field. Um, yep. And I think that's a worry because to my mind, they're not that suitable for the actually hard, important questions that we need to ask. Great, great. All right, well, I think that's a, probably a place to wrap it up. Was there anything okay. anything that sort of you wanted to say on the back of this conversation so far, anything that you, you wish uh, we had covered? Um, you asked me one question in the in the prep about like what I want to see in the world or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And there's one point that I'll make that's not in any of my work to date, but that yeah. will hopefully be in my next kind of academic book, um, which is, I just mentioned this like post-Protestant values. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about post-capitalism a lot, particularly around sustainability. But to my mind, one of the biggest transformations that we need Um, and that I do see in the intergenerational change between, say, the current professoriate, so the kind of 60-year-olds and above, and the younger people, is the move away from um, work as, like, really crucial, fundamental to well-being to instead focusing on, like, activity and engagement. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is an emphasis in, in this kind of, I think, broadly the Protestant or post-Protestant because it's lost all its religious altruistic undertones. Yeah. yeah. Um, this idea that like work makes you godly, um, yeah. idle hands do the devil's work, yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. And a lot of our public policy outcome variables are oriented around re-employment, skills for employment, always employment, employment, yeah. gainful yeah. employment, get cash. Um, whereas I think if we have more of an emphasis on are you active and engaged in your life? So you're not idle. Um, mm-hmm. You're not adrift. Yeah. Um, but you might be doing volunteering. You might be pursuing your hobbies for art. You might yep. be doing care work um, or other things that are not in the market economy. And those are really fundamental to individual well-being and even more fundamental to community well-being. Uh, and so I think that's, that's something that I would like to hear more conversation about is a shift mm-hmm. in orientation around, away from getting money um, and more towards self-actualizing. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I'm laughing to myself because I think uh, my friend's dad, I heard him say this like just a couple of weeks ago, like, oh, you guys, you're like the purpose generation. <laughs> it's like exactly that's what you're talking about. He's kind of like old. Yeah, right. kind of, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Like on, yeah. And as if that's a bad thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, no, that's, that's, I think that's really interesting. I mean, where do you want to see that come from? You, you want to see it, like, you want to see data on this or you want to see, like, where, where should this, this discourse be happening? Um, I guess in the culture, um, okay. but I'd hope to see it flow through to the public policy. 
Um, so I think in the culture, it is already happening. You see the younger generations, as you say, putting a lot more emphasis on purpose, self-actualization, mm-hmm. identity, this kind of stuff. People leaving work on time, having work-life balance, yep. not putting up with shit that the older generations did put up with, that sort of thing. Um, but then in the public policy, I think it's going to take a long time before the, the boomer values that are deeply embedded in a lot of public policy shift out. Um, but I worried sometimes that, uh, you know, for example, this focus on cost-benefit analysis among economists, including happiness economists, still kind of plays into the existing objectives around re-employment. Um, so just as an example, oftentimes uh, greater funding for psychological therapies by the state is justified on the grounds that it will get people back into jobs and so yeah. it will pay, its, pay for itself. Yeah. Uh, and like, okay, like we, we need to get those psychological therapies funded. Like I'm here for that sort of strategic behavior. But I think we're just reinforcing this idea that what's, what's good is if people are working. Um, whereas actually what I want is for people to be self-actualizing. Yeah. And oftentimes that requires healing, not coping. And so then our mental health framework is also often about coping with your mental health, yeah. Yeah. getting on with it, dealing with your shit, this kind of stuff, when actually we should give people the space to just fall to pieces, be a mess for like two years, but actually rebuild yourself on solid foundations. Yeah. Uh, and that requires a very different attitude to how we think about ill-being. Absolutely. Look, and I guess that really brings us all the way back to where we began, which is, you know, your definition or that that first definition of well-being as whatever makes someone's life go well. And you're sort of basically saying, well, let's challenge the assumption that whatever makes someone's, you know, the assumption that someone's life goes well when they're work, working hard at work, whatever. Let's challenge that now. And you're saying you're starting to notice that now. So, um, Yeah. yeah, really exciting. Where should these values come from? Can I just ask? Sorry. I know I, I was sort of hard yeah, up against sure. time, but uh, you know, it's like, you know, we're going to, we're going to replace these values. You sort of talk about like capitalist mm. post Protestant, where should these values come from? I mean, is there an answer to that in your mind? Uh, no, the culture. Uh, like, I think this is changing. It's just a matter of having discourse. That's why I'm putting it out there. Like, these are the values I have. This is what I think is good. Um, yep. So I try to compel people. And if they hear my voice, my arguments and they find them yep. compelling, then hopefully they'll change their views and they'll talk to other people as well. I think that's the only way to do normative change in a society is, is through the culture and through the discourse. Uh, I'm doing a lot of thinking and writing at the moment about metamodernity, which is the kind of cultural mode that comes after postmodernism, which I think is what we're in right now. It's what's emerging right now. And I definitely see these themes that you mentioned, purpose, care, uh, and kindness so like everything everywhere all at once which won all the oscars this year that's a very very metamodern film uh, and its main tropes are nihilism and being kind to people um and i think these kind of cultural artifacts uh as they come out and and people and the zeitgeist kind of really grabs onto them uh as that happens then we'll see that cultural change it's not something that I want policy to be involved in or that I want scientists to be saying like scientifically these values are better for you. That's yes. basically always bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it doesn't, it doesn't align with the sort of the fundamental assumptions of the scientific model. Right. That's right. Yeah. Anyway. So very cool. This is really exciting. I have probably a million more questions, but I, I want to sure. um, acknowledge that, you know, I really appreciate your time. Um, Mark, this has been a real pleasure. Um, you, you, what, the work that you're doing, I, I just think is so impressive and um, really look forward to, to seeing it continue. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks so, very yeah, much for thank having you me on for, the show. Thank thanks you for, for organizing the show. 
and uh, hope that you get more guests, more views and all that. It's good stuff. Good for the discourse. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. Cheers. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Uh, again, a huge um, episode with, uh, with Dr. Mark Fabian. Thank you again, Mark, for your time. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed the show. Like I said before, that was definitely the most technical we've had so far. Um, so a bit of a change of pace. And look, if you're enjoying, subscribe. Um, you can find us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts and on uh, YouTube. But like I've been saying for the last couple of weeks, just share this with one other person that you think will uh, benefit from this. And, and that's really what I'm here for. So thank you again and see you next week. Forza Napoli.